MMC1R Studio. This is Higher Education Renaissance with Peter Lake. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Seaborg, and welcome to our first episode in a series of discussions with law professor Peter Lake from Stetson University. Peter has been considered by many to be the foremost authority on higher education law, which I happen to agree with, of course. But if you haven't heard of Peter Lake, I think you'll find his fresh, candid, and entertaining approach to our topics to be incredibly fascinating. On episode one today, we're going to go back and take a look at some, not all, of the challenges that higher education faced in 2022, and I will have Peter talk about those challenges and what they mean to the industry of higher education moving forward. This is when we're going to look back, but we're not going to stare. We're not going to harbor on those challenges, but learn from them. So sit back and enjoy, and thanks for dropping in. Okay, Peter, before we get out of the gate here, first question I want to ask that's been on my mind is this term that you use to refer to higher education that you call edupocalypse. What is that all about? Edupocalypse. You know, it's a couple of years back now when I started to see a gathering storm against higher education. I don't know that I can carbon date the first moment that that thought crossed my mind. I probably could figure out when I first started using it in speeches and presentations. But the perspective I have is very privileged. I've been very fortunate in the work that I do because I get to see pretty much every angle on higher education. Most people in the field are specialists, and they, they spend most of their time an area or a school or a region or some focus area. I've had the good fortune to basically be exposed to everything. I, I get to see the whole field. And all the pieces came together one day, almost like a calculus formula. I realized that when you looked at multiple dimensions, the pressures on higher education were accelerating and they're coming from different dimensions and they're you know multiplying. Probably at the root of it has been a loss of social trust. The thing that's really been noticeable recently is law has moved into this compliance era and it's absolutely a sign of mistrust. What you're going to see is when an a public and an industry is not trusted, you see the compliance mandates multiply because people want to control it. And if this were Hogwarts, the Ministry of Magic has made its presence known. And that doesn't necessarily translate into better management of the institutions, but it's, it's symptomatic of a deeper issue, this deep mistrust of what's going on. Seems to me the lack of trust started with the Fed's inability to step in and help to provide guidance on Title IX going back to the Obama era. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I, I just heard off the wire that the department has stated its intention to finalize regulations in May of 2023. So it's a good thing that my national conference, which is March 1 to the 6th in Clearwater Beach, Every single day, we have major programming on Title IX, particularly the new regulations that are coming out. At the end of the podcast, I want to have you give us a little synopsis about your upcoming conference that will be held in March. So let's talk about one of the biggest issues since the pandemic started a few years back, and that is enrollment. Is it really an issue? It seems like when you talk to certain colleges and universities, especially the bigger campuses, Enrollment is back to normal and everything seems to be going in the right direction. What do you think about 
those statements and the overall picture of enrollment today? You know, I'm back in my economics class in college. I'm looking at two macro trends that are having a very big impact in this edge apocalypse that I'm talking about. And one is that the, the customer base is drying up. There aren't as many people in the pipeline to go to higher education that there were before. And whether people want to admit it or not, there are enrollment strains at every level at every institution. Now, they may posture say otherwise. I have friends inside very high ivory tower institutions, and they'll say, look, you know, we can populate our group with a lot of really talented people, but the pool is not as deep as it used to be. And we can still swim, but we notice that the water level has changed. And community colleges, a lot of privates are having issues uh, because there just aren't as many customers. And add to the other side of it is that the demand for the product has shifted. Uh, it's become more expensive. The cost of education, the big story of the last 50 years is that the cost of education has shifted to learners. And that was not true of American higher education through most of its history, but starting in the 80s, but particularly 90s and forward, and especially after the millennium, the cost to learn has accelerated radically. And it's on the shoulders largely of learners. People have been doing everything they can to defray that with these ridiculously high discount rates and other tricks. But the fact of the matter is you're taking on a pretty significant financial burden. Most people are if you're going to go to college or beyond. And that has a chilling effect on people. I mean, it just it's obviously anybody that's rational is going to do some kind of cost benefit analysis and then add that to the fact that you're getting public narratives, and this goes also to the edge apocalypse point, that the reds, the blues, and the purples cannot agree on very much these days. They all agree on is that there's a problem in higher ed. Now, they don't necessarily see the same issue, but I hear Bernie Sanders people saying, you know, we're getting ripped off. We can't pay our loans. The government's burdening us with a lot of debt. We don't have learning outcomes that are helping us get what we want. I talk to, um, you know, very, very red leaders in the government. You know, we want to support programs that produce demonstrable outcomes, jobs, et cetera. We're not seeing that in a lot of places. It's too expensive. People can't take the job even if they get the job because they can't afford to do the job. And the purple people in the middle, you know, share various views. And I'll give you one example, Eric. I traveled through Texas one time a couple of years back. I went everywhere. I went from Austin to Odessa, El Paso, down to the Chisos Mountains, up to near Oklahoma. You know, I heard the same story from people in Texas when I rode around. They, they'd say to me, our sons and daughters, if they're bright, they get picked up by the big institutions in the state. They go off to University of Texas, Austin or Houston, and they don't come home. They don't come back to our town. And you're taking the best and the brightest out of our towns, and they never come back. And when they do come back, we, you know, they've changed and we've changed and we're not relating to each other the same way. And there's a bit of a culture war going on here. You know, it's um, higher ed is almost forcing people to aggregate into large urban areas with high economic activity. And so it creates that divide. And I see that with a lot of what I would call purple people and, and red and blue. But where where did my sons and daughters go? You know, where where did they disappear to? Um, and then there's this enormous class of people I call the education homeless. They've gone to school. They have some credits, but they were not able to complete for whatever reason. And they 
been just sort of cast aside and there's no place to take what they've accumulated easily and turn it into something of value. They'll, they'll tell people like, hey, I went to school for a year. I have $10,000 of debt. I couldn't afford to go back. I got sick or I had to take care of my parents or, you know, whatever. And something else I'll just throw in here as well is that you hear a lot of the same narratives no matter what age group you're talking about. Is it worth it? So you add that up, Eric, you know, a declining customer base with a consumer base that's more empowered, skeptical of the business for whatever reason across a very broad spectrum. They encounter what is essentially a pervasive defamation of higher education in litigation and in the media. It, you know, it's hard product to sell. And then, you know, let's take Title IX, for example. I think a lot of people here on Title IX is they think I go to college and then I get prosecuted. You know, and so why in the, why would I do that? You know, I, I don't want to take the risk that I'm going to go to college and be made worse off because of some disciplinary system that's out there. You know, I, I don't want to sound too George Carlin about this, but you remember his old skit? Welcome to higher education. It'll take you six years to graduate. You'll be in a lot of debt. You probably won't get a job. Along the way, you might get sexually assaulted, violently assaulted, hazed, encounter a lot of drugs and alcohol, and end up with a disciplinary record. Welcome to higher ed. I, and I'm joking, but I the thing is, sometimes I think higher ed lives in a echo chamber. We don't realize what the average person processes this as. And they think to themselves, you know, hey, I see the opportunity, but man, I'd like to nudge up along the one percenters and see if some of that wealth and power could rub off on me. But I'm not sure I can afford to do it. I don't know that it's actually going to be beneficial to me. And I've watched enough John Hughes movies to know that, you know, it can be pretty rough trying to to work into that world. Hey, great segue talking about wealth and the one percenters. So let's talk about the term that everybody's throwing around these days, and that's legacies. What's your feeling about legacies? And give us a little understanding about that from your perspective. When people use the word legacy, they tend to immediately, the sort of the rich landed families of yore that can influence the admissions process. But from my perspective, legacy has a lot more dimensions to it. You know, for example, a community college system. The fact that one family member who might have been a first-time college person can then turn to an admissions committee and say, look, this is my son or daughter or cousin. Let's help that person come into the fold. It's That's a kind of legacy that's not at all like the one we'd be thinking about. Or let's flip to the tribal or HBCU world. And legacy is huge there in a way that is very different because it may not be so oriented around huge donations. It may be that the legacy conversation is becoming a bit passe because it appears more and more that it may or may not be a legacy issue. It may be for some of the really elite colleges, 1% access. It doesn't really matter if granddad went there. It matters if you have been in a movie or invented a vaccine that made a billion dollars. You know that That's going to drive a lot of the maneuvering. So I think to me, some of the conversation about legacy admission is actually a sublimated conversation about the fact that one percenters dominate college boards. It influences the admissions process, and there's just no question that if you're looking to drive income and legacy to your institution, you're probably going to gravitate around the people around the planet, not just the United States, who've accumulated massive amounts of wealth, you know, in contradistinction to the 99% that is not. And so I think that's one of the great challenges for really big multinational institutions now is do you, do you play to the money or do you play to find 
people and give them an opportunity, even if they aren't from the 1% class. So being a teacher in this space, is there an educational model out there that you think will be attracting tomorrow's students since things have changed so much? I think you're going to see some folks moving towards something like that Grand Canyon model. And it's it's an incredibly popular model. So, you know, the idea that you'd bring people, say, to LSU to spend Saturdays in Death Valley, and I and I get that. I mean, I, I, I'm a bit of an LSU fan, and Death Valley's quite a place and everything. And, and LSU will still continue to draw that kind of energy. So will the other big schools. But they're now competing with customers that are saying, well, you know, that's one model of student engagement. That's one way to go to school. But, you know, I want to, instead of going to a residential college, I might rather spend most of my time online. And my physical connection with the campus and other students will primarily be in an enhanced activity zone, you know, LA fitness on steroids, basically. Peter. How about what seems to be this empowerment of students? I think the pressure is on to empower students in every dimension of higher education. And when I started in higher ed, the campus police were protecting buildings, not students. They were just people who happened to be there. And the police were worried that the students might vandalize the buildings. And over 30 years, students have moved to the center of attention. I mean, there's a much longer historical story here, but, you know, the history of higher ed in the United States is very much around the power of donors and institutions. But in the last 30 years, because the cost of education has been so staggering, and I think the attitude towards youth and empowerment of people who are learning students, uh, the focus of education is shifting towards the rights of students. And one type of student that's really affected is the student athlete, and in particular, the big business of NCAA. Things have really changed. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on that. And in particular, amateur athletics. Amateur athletics has shifted, profoundly shifted in 2022. You know, the Supreme Court and others have shifted the way they look at college athletics. And, you, you know, you see it in a variety of dimensions, including the fact that athletes now can control their likeness an image in a way that they never could before. Very powerful narratives about safety and responsibility on the field of play and growing dialogue that, at least in some dimensions, so-called amateur athletics function very much like minor leagues or certain professional sports. That's not true across the board. The, the very purpose and function of amateur athletics, the idea of the NCAA, is, is really being looked at in a way that is profoundly different than the late 20th century. You, <laughs> this will, will bring you back, but um, you might remember a certain athlete who was stripped of his gold medals for not being an amateur and mid-20th century. And this kind of stuff is becoming very passe now. Um, one subtext of this, though, is that club sports are, are growing. And we see a lot of challenges with that. It's a world that students are gravitating towards. And the focus is so much on intercollegiate athletics that are sanctioned. And yet, I think what you're finding is a lot of administrators find one of their biggest challenges is the, inner, you know, the club sport world. My sense is that what will happen with athletics and higher education will be very similar to what's happening generally, is that we'll see multiplication of different ways of approaching athletics so that there still will be powerhouse football programs. You know, that's going to 
exist and hockey, baseball, these are still going to exist. And and I still deeply believe in something that the NCAA hung on to and still hangs on to to some extent from the 20th century, the idea that combining athletic participation with learning is part of higher learning. And I was the world's worst athlete. I was the, the worst player on my house football team at Harvard, Quincy House. Uh, we won the championship. In fact, we actually played an intercollegiate game against Yale. I was terrible. But I had so much fun and I learned so much. It was an experience I would never trade and obviously did not lead me to a career in the NFL or really do anything to advance you know, any kind of athletic agenda. But it was so part, much a part of my learning and experience. And I think, there's, I think people are still going to crave that. They're going to want to play even if there's no tomorrow. I'm real interested to get your perspective on the fiscal side of the house. Well, and Eric, you know I worked on Wall Street in the 1980s. You know, I, I, I saw Wolf of Wall Street in first run. I don't need to watch the movie. I literally saw that. The, it, there's some really spooky parallels between America, big business, 1980s, and higher ed, 2021, 22, 23. This period is very similar in some ways. And one of the things that's very noticeable our institutions were not meant to be nimble. They were, in fact, they were designed by history to be exactly the opposite of nimble. They were supposed to be survivors and stable. And notice the fetish for buildings and grounds. A college president every week announces a new structure that's being built. And it says everything to me. It's, you know, the image is that's, we're here, we're going to stay, we can't be put out of business. The trouble we're running into is we are not poor, we have capital resources, but we have liquid asset problems. Like the 80s, a lot of higher education businesses really don't know, honestly, where the wealth of their institution is. They think it's in U.S. news rankings or endowment or buildings. And I'm going to say this, Eric, I don't care what your endowment is. You can spend through that in a couple of years if you're in a downward spiral. Your buildings are generally worthless to people. And the real wealth of a university lies in the goodwill and continuing branding of the people who've attended it. And you saw this with Sweetbriar. In fact, there's a little documentary out right now that I think everybody in higher ed should watch. It deals with a Catholic school in Massachusetts and lost its sanctioning from the archdiocese. And they found a way to survive. And because the alumni base was so powerfully committed to their survival. I'm telling you, the wealth of a university is not in its money. It's not in its buildings. It's not in its reputation. It's actually in the brand that it creates with its learners and the bonds that are created between administrators, teachers, and students. What's going to happen, Eric, is that people are going to, one way or another, hard or easy, they're going to figure this out because that's the dynamic that's going to play here is that higher ed is not about buildings. It's not about endowments. It's not about degrees on a wall. It's about that connection and what you learn and what you take forward in life. The institutions that emphasize that will survive. I suspect there will be mega institutions, perhaps even global. Where we sit right now, the meteor is hitting. So what's higher ed to do at this point? You know, what, we, what we're asking higher ed to do, we're sending a signal to them that's exactly the opposite of that. We want more authenticity and transparency. But every move in the public eye is pillorying somebody for something. And what are we getting today is a slew of media messages from colleges that are, they're as homogenized as a bottle of milk at the supermarket. You know, it just, and people are like, I want to hear the truth. I want to hear what you're really thinking. But 
boy, it's hard to step out of that trench, hard to do it. And so that's one of the troubles here. I think at some point, because I was raised by an Irish mother, and candor was a big part of growing up. Um, there comes a point when you get criticized and picked on so much. After a while, you just don't care anymore. You're like, well, you know, I'm going to get it, so I might as well just do it my way. And we need to ask the world for what we need. You know, for example, I'll take you to Virginia Tech. And I worked with the families who'd lost people tech in 07. A lot of people want it as an apology. And that's the one thing the legal system struggles with is apologizing. They don't people don't necessarily want money or they want someone to say, I'm genuinely sorry, and to make it almost impossible for people to step out on the public stage and say, look, it's, you know, my bad. I just, it's breaking my heart. I'm wrong. Something I did, I could have done better. If you say that, it costs you millions of dollars and they hang you, you know, at, at noon. We have to find a way to get people what they need, to get the legal rules and the social rules that higher ed can thrive and actually connect with the people that it needs to the most. And that's, that's my lifelong challenge. And I'd say we've made some progress, but uh, if I say one thing to higher ed is be courageous and fearless, it's what have you got to lose? Because what you're losing by not doing it is much greater. So how about the positives? You know, I know I deliver some messages that are pretty grim sometimes, but it all comes for love of the industry. And the truth is I'm a ridiculous optimist. I mean, I, I wouldn't have missed this time in higher ed for nothing on the planet, and we're here. And the privilege to get to talk to you and whoever might listen to this is is beyond belief, because you, you couldn't have located a more transitional, critical moment. And I do think that us thinking out loud and sharing humor and hospitality may help people through this process and help to spark the cultural revolution that's just around the corner. Because, And I know, and look, and I say nutty things and people are always like, this guy's off the wall, but I have a PowerPoint from 2019 that said, prepare for the pandemic of 2020. Um, in February of uh, 2011, I told people, watch out, the federal government's about to hyper-regulate you. Nobody believed me. Uh, sometimes I play the role of Cassandra, you know, that ancient goddess that knew the future, but no one wanted to believe it. Again, I make mistakes like everyone else does. What I see is a renaissance. I see on the other side of this, a true human renaissance, because Eric, this planet wants to get smarter. When I look on the at a global level, I see more people getting education, more people talking about education. Information is flowing. And the planet has challenges that require global cosmopolitan solutions with high-level thinking. It, the planet wants to grow, and it's going to do it, you know, because you can just kind of feel the energy of that. And right now, you know, the bad energies are out. Bum, bum, bum. You know, everywhere you go, you can find the boogeyman, you know, telling you it's going to be bad. And what did Dr. King write? He said, uh, you know, fear knocked at the door, faith answered, and no one was there. And so our message is we confront, we're going to confront these boogeymen together. I know the conference is going to be filled with many of the topics you've talked about here today. So why don't you give us a little bit more detail on the conference that will be in Clearwater Beach, March 1st through the 6th? Oh, thanks, Eric. Uh, our conference truly is unique. We are not connected with a membership group. It's a pure academic exercise. And we offer an interdisciplinary perspective on the challenges in higher education and, and ways to work with it 
that really no one else does. I mean, there's no really other event really quite like it. Some have imitated it, but I have every kind of person in higher ed come to my conference. Wonderful women whose sons died and study abroad. We've been working together for over 15 years now to improve legal roles and policy roles around study abroad, and we're making some real success. And what's particularly cool about our conference, Eric, we don't just talk about the law, we make it. Several of the legal rules that people live with now are directly the result of our conference. Association for Student Conduct Administrators was born in the hallways of this conference. So, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier, um, I like to think of myself as Batman. I'm not a typical cop. They call me when they have an issue that they haven't had before. You know, here comes the Joker. And if you want to go to the cutting edge and see where the future is, what the top thinkers, the influencers, what they're thinking, because I have the book authors, the leaders, the people in the press, they're all coming. You're going to get the best perspective on how to, to move forward. You know, If you want to go to your membership organization and have a rubber chicken lunch, I'm all in favor of that. But this is an engaged, thoughtful interdisciplinary experience. And for almost everyone that comes, it's transformative. It happens to be on the beach around spring break, which doesn't hurt. But at a time when you kind of need an opportunity to catch your breath and meet like-minded souls, we're your tribe. Thanks, Peter, for everything that you've talked about today. And certainly for the episodes going forward into the future, I'm really looking forward to that. I appreciate everyone dropping in today to try us out. And I hope you will join us next time on the Higher Education Renaissance with Peter Lake. Thanks, Eric. You're the best. Higher Education Renaissance is produced by Eric Seaborg, Grace Mosby, Gina Profeta. Technical production by MC1R Studios. Artwork by Jin G Productions. We welcome your comments or program recommendations for future episodes at eric.seaborg at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. It's been quite a ride.